the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. You can follow us at com on Twitter, at Dan Proft Show, or at Dan Proft. Both handles work. Of course, we uh, need to start tonight's program with uh, a remembrance of Kobe Bryant and also uh, his daughter and the seven other passengers who perished on that fateful helicopter flight uh, to Van Nuys on Sunday morning. It was reported Um, there's so much of Kobe to break down. There's Kobe, the basketball player, Kobe, the man and the husband and the father and the Catholic and then, of course, uh, the events that surrounded his uh, tragic passing at the tender age of 41 after one of the most storied careers in basketball in the history of the game. Uh, why don't we start with tributes from those who knew him from the beginning? Well, at least the beginning of his basketball career, going back to the age of 17. And I don't think there's a better place to start when it comes to putting Kobe's life and import in the game of basketball into perspective than with L.A. Lakers great Hall of Famer Jerry West, who uh, essentially took uh, Kobe under his wing. Talk about icon to icon. Uh, Jerry West, literally an icon of the NBA. He's the silhouette on the NBA logo. And, of course, uh, forever with the Lakers organization, Jerry West, remembering in this ABC special that aired Sunday night about 9 p.m. Central Time, Jerry West remembering Kobe Bryant from the age of 17 and talking about uh, what their relationship uh, developed into and the importance of that relationship to him over the last more than two decades. Uh, When he was 17 years old, couldn't drive. My son Ryan used to drive him to the practices. He'd never been in the 405 freeway, never had that horrible experience. And then to start thinking about some of the intimate things that I had done with him to um, help him through the hurdles of a 17-year-old kid trying to become an NBA player and take that t- enormous amount of talent he had and to put it within a framework that would help the Lakers be successful for so many years. 20 years career, um, uh, one of the worst days of my life, the only thing I can compare it to is I had a brother killed in Korea. Mm. And I'm just devastated by this news. An emotional Jerry West, and of course, uh, that's pretty, um, pretty lofty comparison compared to his own brother who died in service to our country in the Korean War. Uh, also, you think of Lakers greats, the pantheon of Lakers greats. You want to hear from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and he chimed in. Again, uh, as uh, eloquent as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is normally, searching for the words. It's very difficult for me to put in words how I feel about the loss 
of Kobe Bryant. As a young boy, I met him when he was 11 or 12 years old. I was friends with his dad, Joe. We were uh, former uh, adversaries. Joe played for the 76ers, but he was a good friend and uh, someone that I shared a friendship. And it's hard for me to uh, understand now how this is affecting Joe and his wife. So uh, to Kobe's family, I want to send my most sincere and heartfelt uh, regrets and prayers, and my thoughts are with you guys. Kobe was a, an incredible family man. He loved his wife and, and daughters. He was an incredible athlete and a leader in a, in a lot of ways. He inspired a whole generation of young athletes. He was one of the first ones to leave high school and come into the NBA and do so well, dominating the game and becoming one of the best scorers that the Los Angeles Lakers has ever seen. I had the privilege of being there when he scored his 81-point game, and it was something that I will always remember as one of the highlights of uh, the things that I have learned and observed in sports. Kobe, my thoughts are with you, absolutely. Rest in peace, young man. This loss is it's, it's just hard to comprehend. Go with God. That 81-point game against the Raptors, I remember that too. Unbelievable. Uh, perhaps the most incredible performance this side of Chamberlain's 100 points. Uh, I remember seeing Kobe Bryant play his last game in Chicago at the United Center in 2016. And uh, he was, uh, again, in my lifetime, one of those uh, basketball players, one of those artists, really, that you're privileged to have lived in the era when they performed. And you think about this across any sport or art, right? So think about uh, having been privileged to live in uh, the era where you could see Pavarotti perform in Turandot, uh, sing Nessun Dorma in Turandot. Uh, in basketball, that's, uh, that's Michael Jordan for me as a Chicago guy, for sure. And Kobe and Bird and Magic in the 80s and Maravich a generation before. Those five in my lifetime. Privileged to have lived in a time to see them perform. Kobe Bryant was right there. Speaking of MJ, who really passed the torch uh, to Kobe after his retirement to be the premier star in the NBA, Michael Jordan referred to Kobe as like a little brother in his statement on Kobe's passing. I'm in shock over the tragic news of Kobe's and Gianna's passing. Of course, Gianna, his daughter. Words can't describe the pain I'm feeling. I loved Kobe. He was like a little brother to me. We used to talk often, and I will miss those conversations very much. He was a fierce competitor, one of the greats of the game, and a creative force. Kobe was also an amazing dad who loved his family deeply and took great pride in his daughter's love for the game of basketball. Yvette, Michael's wife, joins me in sending my deepest condolences to Vanessa, the Lakers organization, and basketball fans around the world. Now thinking about Jordan passing the torch to Kobe, and then Kobe passing the torch to LeBron James. And this uh, tragic death occurred on the weekend when basketball fans like me were reminiscing about Kobe's greatness because, of course, LeBron James passed Kobe Bryant for third on the all-time scoring list this weekend. And uh, James remarked uh, upon uh, how he came to know Kobe and how Kobe inspired him. And the amazing thing to listen to LeBron James talk is he and Kobe are only six years apart. Now, Kobe was 41, LeBron James is 35, but listen to LeBron James uh, uh, talk about his uh, 
being his is being inspired by Kobe. I went to ABCD camp, and he came and talked to all the all the all the kids that was there, and I happened to be one of the one of the kids that was there, and I was just I was just listening. I was just trying to soak everything up I could, you know. And I remember one thing that he said. He was like, "If you want to try to be, you know, great at it, or want to be one of the greats, you got to put the work in. You know, there's no substitution to work." And I, and I was a 15 year old kid at that camp. You can actually find the footage of him uh, him at that camp. Mm, and LeBron James talking about Kobe's game. Just seeing the work ethic, um, the work ethic that he put into the game. He had zero flaws offensively. Zero. Uh, you backed off of him. He could shoot the three. You pick. You know. You body him up a little bit. He can go around you. He can shoot the mid range. He can post. He can make free throws. He has zero flaws offensively. And, and uh, the the other thing too, just the the sort of the circle of life. The irony here, not just this occurring on the weekend when LeBron James passes Kobe for third all time, uh, only now behind Karl Malone and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who you heard from, but also. Uh, LeBron James in Philadelphia, where Kobe grew up, in a Lakers uniform now. We take it down to 2008 where we become the the redeemed team. And it was a dream come true for me to be able to line up alongside of him. Um, Just admiring him for so many years and him seeing him from afar and then being able to be in practices with him and, and, you know, me watching and learning. so on. I mean, it's just it's just too much. It's just too much. The story is just too much. It doesn't make sense. Um, and just to make a long story short, now I'm here in the Lakers uniform in Philadelphia, where he's from, where I wanted the first first time I ever met him. Gave me his shoes. He won All Star Week. It's just it's surreal. It doesn't make no sense. On uh, you know the occasion of him uh, announcing his retirement and doing that retirement tour. A few years back now, uh, Kobe Bryant penned a dear basketball letter that he uh, uh, that he posted on in newspapers in L.A. and also turned into a short that won him an Academy Award, won him an Oscar, uh, a portion of Kobe Bryant's love letter to basketball, effectively. No matter what I do next, I'll always be that kid with the rolled up socks, garbage can in the corner, five seconds from the clock. Ball in my hands. Love you always. Uh, and when we come back on the Dan Proud Show, I want to talk just a little bit more about uh, Kobe the man and then also what we know about that, that fateful flight and the circumstances surrounding that helicopter crash. More on Kobe Bryant coming up on the Dan Proud Show. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show talking about uh, the passing of kobe bryant his daughter and seven others including uh, his, uh apparently his regular, if not longtime, pilot, a uh, gentleman who was the baseball coach at Orange County College, John Altabelli, his wife and daughter, another mom and daughter duo, as well as another coach, 
just a tragic loss of life for um, that community uh, as they were making their way to uh, a basketball game to play basketball. He had become so much a proponent of girls basketball, not just because he had four daughters, but certainly including because he had four daughters, but had co-founded the sports academy where all of those who were on that helicopter were going. And Kobe Bryant appeared on a Jimmy Kimmel show not so long ago talking about his affinity for girls basketball and developing girls basketball talents like his daughter. Do you think your daughter might want to play in the WNBA? She does for sure. She does? I, I don't, it means this, this kid, man. She's Wouldn't like, that be great? Dude, man, I, I'm telling you. The, be- the best thing, the best thing that happens is when we go out and, and, and fans will come up to me and she'll be standing next to me and they'll be like, "Hey, you gotta have a boy. You and V gotta have a boy, man. You have somebody carry on the tradition, the legacy." She's like, "Oh, I got this." And there's something about Kobe and family because, of course, when a tragic passing like this occurs of such a high-profile person, you get people that remember the good as well as the bad. And the bad, of course, was the 2003 incident in Colorado where Kobe Bryant was accused of sexual assault. Now, that case was ultimately dropped. Charges were ultimately dropped. The woman in question chose not to testify. Nevertheless, Kobe admitted to an extramarital affair, not his finest hour. He uh, agreed to a out-of-court civil settlement in which he also issued a public apology. And in 2011, his wife filed for divorce. So it was some dark years for Kobe Bryant. What's not known about Kobe, and you probably won't hear on sports talk shows, but you'll hear on this show, is that he rediscovered his faith through some of these trying times. In point of fact, in Philadelphia, Kobe was raised Catholic, even spent some of his time in Italy. He eventually married his wife, Vanessa, at St. Edward's Roman Catholic Church in Dana Point, California. He uh, gave an interview to GQ in 2015 where he said, the one thing that really helped me during the process, I'm Catholic. Catholic. I grew up Catholic. My kids are Catholic. I was talking to a priest who was actually kind of funny. He looks at me and says, did you do it? And I say, of course not. Then he asked, do you have a good lawyer? And I'm like, uh, yeah, he's phenomenal. So then he just said, let it go. Move on. God's not going to give you anything you can't handle. And it's in his hands now. This is something you can't control. So let it go. And that was the turning point. This is not to say that it was all hunky-dory after that. He said, we still fight just like every married couple, but you know, my reputation as an athlete is that I'm extremely determined and I will work my ass off. How could I do that in my professional life if I wasn't like that in my personal life when it affects my kids? It wouldn't make any sense. And it, uh, Bryant and his wife were reportedly regular parishioners at an Orange County, California parish. In fact, uh, a singer named Christina Ballestero posted on Instagram a story of her encounter with Bryant at Holy Family Cathedral in Orange, California at a weekday mass. Uh, She said, as we went up to communion, Bryant waited for me to go. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, you understand this is a respectful thing men do in the church as a sign of respect to women. He said, I have a beautiful voice. His most inspiring trait was his decision to turn his faith uh, in God and receive God's mercy and to be a better man after a regretful decision. He goes back to reflecting in that GQ interview about Colorado, saying the incident in Colorado. What I came to understand coming out of Colorado is that I still had to be me in the place where I was at that moment. Although I truly believe the encounter between us was consensual, I recognize now that she did not and does not view the incident the same way I did. This is part of his 2004 apology. After months of reviewing Discovery, listening to her attorney and even her testimony in person, I now understand she feels that she did not consent to this encounter. That was the public apology. And then, of course, you've heard everything that flowed from it. And then you have the Kobe Vanessa Bryant Foundation that does work using sports to teach social skills. So, uh, you know, his faith certainly informing his work as a servant leader, both during the rest of his NBA career and subsequent, although that was cut short. Now, just uh, wanting to touch upon the flight itself, this um, helicopter that Kobe was flying in 
was actually owned by the state of Illinois from the years 2007 to 2015, according to uh, Helicopter Info Database. It was uh, sold off by the state. Illinois needs the money, if you haven't heard, one of the worst governed state in America. It's a, a quality helicopter. Uh, it was ostensibly in good working condition. And so it's just odd to hear what happened uh, because what you have from the ATC that has been air traffic control exchange between the pilot and uh, the tower is seemingly, despite inclement weather, heavy fog, a chopper that was uh, making its turn from base to final to land at the Van Nuys Airport, and then it just disappears. Listen to this audio. Actually, with you for the special VFR transition, we are currently at 1400. Helicopter 7 to Echo X-ray Van Nuys Tower. Wind calm, visibility 2 and 1 half. Ceiling 1100 overcast, Van Nuys altimeter 3016. Cleared into Van Nuys Class Delta, northeast of Van Nuys along the 118 freeway westbound. Advise when you're in VFR conditions or when you're clear of the Van Nuys Class Delta. Transition at or below 2500 permitting. To echo X-ray, advise in VFR condition, uh, and then we stay on the uh, 118, so we're currently at 1400, and we have 0235. Helicopter 2 Echo X-ray, thank you. And once you clear Van Nuys Delta, did you want to talk to SoCal? Affirmative, 2 Echo X-ray. Tower for 2 Echo X-ray, can we start, go ahead and start turning to the uh, southwest close to 11? Helicopter 2 Echo X-ray approved, and are you transitioning in VFR condition? VFR condition, 1500, 2 Echo X-ray. Helicopter 2 Echo X-ray, thank you. Contact SoCal now, 134.2 for flight falling, 34.2. 34.2. X-ray, ident. Oh, X-ray, yeah, you're uh, on a 1200 code. Uh, are you requesting flight following? Two Echo X-ray, what do you say intentions? Two Echo X-ray, you're uh, still too low level uh, for uh, flight following at this time. So it's too low for flight following because of the terrain and uh, was uh, not communicative for the, the last 30 seconds of that transmission. No warning, no indication of any problems. Uh, the report is shortly after 9.40 a.m., the helicopter turned toward the southeast, climbed to more than 2,000 feet above sea level. Uh, Van Nuys Airport's 800 feet above sea level, so you want to be about 1,000. Uh, I mean, I'm a private pilot, so I know a little bit of this. You want to be 1,000 uh, feet above the sea level indicator for a particular airport for the landing pattern. And it was clear that after being held up, the chopper was moving into the landing pattern. As I said, it was the downwind leg, and he had turned base to turn final, but he never made that that turn from base to final. They just, if you see it on the radar, you look at it on the radar, it just trails off. Too low to uh, uh, for flight following from air traffic control. Again, 9.40 a.m., climbed to more than 2,000 feet above sea level, then descended and crashed into a hillside about 1,400 feet above sea level, uh, flying at about... Uh, 45 miles per hour, or descending at a rate of about 45 miles per hour, flying at uh, 160 knots uh, when uh, it struck the ground. Um, and again, this is a uh, pilot, Era Zobayan, who uh, was referred to uh, when it became known that he was the pilot on that fateful uh, flight. He taught aspiring helicopter pilots to fly, he was very much loved in the aviation community. Uh, those in that community wrote, rest easy as you take your final flight to heaven. Uh, and again, was uh, a known quantity for Kobe Bryant. So the whole thing of what happened in those last 30 seconds from his communication, the pilot's communication with air traffic control, to uh, just going off the grid uh, with respect to a malfunction or a health event or 
or or just a, a catastrophic pilot error. It's it's just not known at this point, um, but it's uh, something that obviously we'll be tracking in the coming days. This is the Dan Prop Show. on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. If you lost, the New York Times is David Brooks on removing the president from office. You're in a pretty bad position if you're house managers. Here's what... uh, David Brooks had to say on PBS over the weekend. I was a little less impressed. I mean, the two main arguments, were that's when he directly addressed why this is worth removing. And it was, well, Trump believed Giuliani and not his own intelligence agencies. And he did it out of self-interest. That strikes me as true, not a big crime. And then he said, you can't trust Trump in the 2020 election when China may interfere. But you can't impeach for something that hasn't already happened. And so I, I think the removal part is still a slightly weak case yeah, slightly weak. David Brooks is saying it's slightly weak. It's uh, catastrophically weak is how that should translate into common sense speak. Lindsey Graham was on with uh, Maria Bartiroma, and he went into more detail on the infirmities of the House manager's case, both on process and substance. First process. Witnesses present evidence. So the Nixon impeachment lasted for years. He went to the Supreme Court. The Clinton investigation lasted for four and a half years. So the defense was able to tell the Senate that all the due process given Nixon and Clinton did not exist with Trump. And they made the most stunning of all arguments. They impeached the president of the United States in 78 days. Why? Because they wanted to get it over by Christmas. Why didn't they pursue witnesses in the House? That would require, require court action that would delay their goal of impeaching him before the election. Mm. I think that's devastating to the House managers. If you contested a parking ticket, it'd probably take more than 78 days. Uh, and then Graham on the substance? So on substance, they told us that the president was unconcerned about burden sharing, that he was not concerned about corruption, that the only reason he wanted the Ukrainians to look at the Bidens and look into 2016 election interference was for personal gain. They read the transcript for 21 hours selectively. In the transcript that the House managers never read to the Senate was an exchange between President Trump and the Ukrainian President Zelensky where President Trump was complaining about the Europeans not doing enough And the president of the Ukraine agreed. The president in the transcript from the Ukraine said to the president Trump, you know, you're doing more than the Europeans. It shouldn't be that way. I'm paraphrasing. So the transcript was uh, devastating to their case. Then the witnesses that they called in their case, they took snippets of hour long testimony. And one thing for a young lawyer, if you want to use a piece of evidence from a deposition or a a tape, make sure that other parts of the tape do not destroy the parts that you used. They were able to prove that the witnesses that were called on behalf of the government 
when you look at other things they said, completely destroyed their case. That the president had been concerned about corruption in the Ukraine. He raised it with the past president of the Ukraine, raised it with this president. And when it comes to the meeting, the manager said that the president was telling the Ukrainian president, you'll never meet with me in the White House Mm. or any place else unless you give in to to my demands. In the transcript, the president of the Ukraine suggested that the president Trump meet him in Poland September the 1st. The president agreed to that meeting, and the only reason he didn't go was because of hurricanes, and he sent the vice president in his place. Within two hours, they devastated the process and substance argument. In addition to that, you also had deputy uh, counsel for the president, Patrick Philbin, uh, talk about uh, Schiff's change of heart on the whistleblower. And he made the point that uh, one of the transcripts from the House investigation has still not made been made available to the White House defense team. And that's the inspector general's the, uh, the inspector general for the intelligence community's transcript, his testimony before the House, where he spoke behind closed doors about the bias he thought may be present with the whistleblower. Why has that transcript not been made available? Why no interest in having the whistleblower testify anymore when Adam Schiff said uh, that it was important that the whistleblower testify even after even after the transcript of the Trump Zelensky phone call was released? So Schiff's claim now is we don't need the whistleblower to testify because we have the phone call. But he was still calling for the whistleblower to testify after the transcript was released. He stopped calling for the whistleblower to testify when there were reports that the whistleblower, well, worked for Biden, but also had consorted with Schiff's staff. When we come back, we'll be joined by William Jacobson, clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law School, also founder of LegalInsurrection.com. Professor Jacobson joins us when we return. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. As promised, we're joined by William Jacobson, clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law School, also founder of LegalInsurrection.com. Professor Jacobson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, you know, I mean, how do you what are some of your top lines after, you know, a week of this leading with the first offerings from the uh, defense team on Saturday? I was able to watch the entirety of the two hour presentation by the Republicans on Saturday. And as some of the clips you played indicate, it was fairly devastating to the substance of the Democratic case. It's not looking good. uh, And I think that's one of the reasons why we have now 
bombshell, the big bombshell like we did in Kavanaugh near the end when it looks like it's over for the Democrats. All of a sudden, there's some accusation made, and that's the New York Times report last night or yesterday on the upcoming Bolton book, um, which uh, having read that lengthy, lengthy New York Times report, there's actually almost no substance in it. There's no quotes from the book. There's no specific accusations. It's a conclusion. And I think that's why the Republican senators would be right to be very skeptical about what's going on here and the demand for witnesses, because John Bolton is somebody the House could have tried to subpoena. They never actually even subpoenaed him in the House. And the courts could have, on an expeditious basis, ruled on whether the subpoena was valid. I mean, there are all these things. And so now they're trying to turn the Senate into an investigatory body, and that's not what the Senate role here is. So I think the Democrats are in a lot of trouble. Their only hope is they can stretch this thing out, get more media bombshells that stretch it out. The left Parnas tape is really a whole lot of nothing. Trump has publicly said he didn't like that ambassador. It's his right to remove an ambassador and to appoint ambassadors. So left Parnas comes out with a tape where Trump says he doesn't like the ambassador. There's literally zero news in that tape, but it's dominated the media news cycle for 48 hours or 72 hours now. But when you get down to it, the Republican two-hour presentation was fairly devastating to the Democrats. And it wasn't just devastating on the substance. It was devastating as to the intent of the Democrats. Really, the only question is sometime later this week, are four Republican senators going to vote to call witnesses and turn this thing into a complete circus in the Senate? As it looks at the moment in time, it does not look like they're going to get four. They might get one or two. Yeah. And uh, not just cherry picking witness testimony like Gordon Sondland's cherry picking uh, holds on four and eight, as Jay Sekulow pointed out, there were many examples of, in the president, uh, in President Trump's administration of other legitimate holds on foreign aid, uh, Afghan aid because of concerns with corruption and other examples, Northern Triangle because those countries weren't doing enough to stem the flow of illegal immigration and other such examples. But they also are cherry picking the law. They use U.S. v. Nixon as the basis for impeaching President Trump, but they cherry pick the holding in U.S. v. Nixon. They sort of gloss over the fact that the Supreme Court in that case also said in rejecting Nixon's sweeping claims of privilege, a narrow claim of presidential privilege may well be justified. And the Wall Street Journal pointed this out, saying that from the opinion, president and those who assist him must be free to explore alternatives in the process of shaping policies and making decisions and to do so in a way that many would be unwilling to express except privately. These are considerations justifying a presumptive privilege for presidential communication. That portion of the Supreme Court opinion, U.S. v. Nixon, uh, the Democrats didn't tackle. That's right. And that's uh, a lot of what goes on here is that they bring in, you know, inapplicable precedent or they misstate what it is that, you know, president probably would win in court on John Bolton's testimony being subject to executive privilege. I mean, he was about as close to the president as you can get. And if a president is going to be able to confide in his senior most advisors, he or she or whoever it happens to be in the future has to have an understanding that that is private. Otherwise, you will never speak to your closest advisors. So I, I think Trump would probably win. I don't think Trump would win in the sense of that Bolton doesn't have to show up to testify, but I think he would win the president once Bolton shows up could assert executive privilege to prevent, you know, 
testimony as to private conversations with the president. And I think that's why the Democrats didn't go to court. They could have gotten from a district court a fairly quick ruling. I think they probably could have gotten a ruling within two or three weeks and then an appeals court ruling within a week or so after that. So within a couple of months, they could have had all the rulings that they needed and the Supreme Court would have ruled on a temporary basis as to what would happen. So this notion that it would be years and years and years before they'd get a ruling on this witnesses, I think is false. They didn't even try and they didn't try because I think ultimately they knew that the key people they claim to have wanted, Mulvaney, Bolton, and a couple of others are so close and so senior in the administration that they never would have been allowed to testify anyway. The other thing, just going back to the Lev Parnas bombshell audio video that surfaced over the weekend. So that was from a dinner in April of 2018. And he was saying, get rid of Marie Ivanovich, the ambassador. I'll get rid of her tomorrow. Well, wait a second. That's a year before Joe Biden announced he was running for president. So I guess President Trump's perspective with respect to Ukrainian policy wasn't all tied up in, quote unquote, getting dirt on a political opponent. Trump doesn't like people who are disloyal to him and who don't like him. And the reports he was getting, whether they're true or not, is that this ambassador was disloyal to him, was an Obama holdover, was undermining his policies. And he had every right as president to say, I want an ambassador who actually supports my policies. And I think he was entitled to that. And the fact that as as you indicate, a year earlier, he expressed that view actually hurts the Democrats because it shows it wasn't tied into Biden running for president because he wasn't even running at that point. And it wasn't even clear he would run. He said he didn't know Lev Parnas. So now we're going to go down this rabbit hole of did he know or didn't he know Lev Parnas? This is what the D.C. press corps wants to do. Who cares if he knew him or not? What does that have to do with removing a president from office? Exactly. What's the evidence that Lev Parnas has? It's it's almost non-existent. And who is Lev Parnas? I mean, this is a guy who's under indictment for making false statements to the government. I mean, this is the quality of witness that they're bringing forward. I would expect that tomorrow there'll be some new nonsensical bombshell. I mean, really, people need to read that New York Times article. There isn't a single quote in there from the book. It's what certain people who say they've seen the book how they characterize it, and then the New York Times characterizes it. It's not even third-hand hearsay because nobody told the New York Times a quote from the book. So it's And this is now dominating it. This comes out at a critical juncture, just like it did for Kavanaugh. This is the Democrat playbook on how to oppose Trump. Use the media to your advantage to roll things out and disrupt what's going on. It's just too bad that Michael Avenatti is in federal custody. Otherwise, he could insinuate himself back into this process, and that would be fun. I certainly like to hear from him. Uh, William Jacobson, clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law School, founder of LegalInsurrection.com, which is must-reading, and president of Legal Insurrection Foundation. Professor Jacobson, thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. Listen, the more you'll know, this is The Dan Prof Show. This is 60 Seconds of Sanity with Dan Proft. The timer starts now. The Iowa caucus is one week away, and perhaps the most pronounced problem Democrats have in 2020 is, to paraphrase you too, they can either live with or without Bernie Sanders. They can't nominate him and win, but they need his supporters. 
the problem is Bernie backers have good BS detectors when it comes to a Democrat establishment that rigged the 2016 primary against their guy. A compelling piece of polling data from a recent Emerson College survey finds a remarkable spread between Bernie supporters and those of the other Democrat POTUS frontrunners as to the question of, will you support whoever the Democrat nominee turns out to be? 90% of Warren voters and 87% of Biden voters say yes. By contrast, only 54% of Bernie voters answer in the affirmative. That is a significant disparity. In our current era of negative partisanship elections, by this I mean I dislike my party's nominee less than I dislike the other party's nominee, if you don't bring your base, you cannot win. The Democrat Party establishment's desire to secure the Bernie bros but discard Bernie is like trying to get the populist vote without the popular. They have a problem. They really do have a problem, and we talked a little bit about it on Friday, discuss it a smidge more here, again, especially as there's polling over the weekend that finds Bernie uh, not only in the lead nationally, national polls, which doesn't mean anything. This is a state-by-state process, but it is indicative of momentum. But also ahead uh, in uh, polling in both Iowa and New Hampshire, despite the fact that Elizabeth Warren got the Des Moines Register endorsement over the rest of the field. And that has historically given candidates a little bit of a bump, three or four point bump, according to 538. Historically, that's not going to be enough for Elizabeth Warren to win the Iowa caucus next week. It may be enough for her to have a showing that uh, keeps her in the ball game to go on to New Hampshire and South Carolina. But we'll see. But clearly the momentum is with Bernie. And it, the, the conversation has been Bernie versus Biden for the last couple of weeks. And uh, that disparity that we talked about on Friday and emphasizing here again, that is so significant. How do you fold in those that are very wary of the Democrat establishment, but not bring the guy to the table that they want to be the nominee? It's a bit of a trick bag. And, uh, you know, I don't know that uh, Joe Biden saying, for example, that trans issues are the civil rights issue of our time this weekend is going to bring them or, frankly, Andrew Yang voters, smaller group, but also similarly leery of the uh, established establishment Democrats like Biden and even to some extent Warren, who they I think they see as less authentic. It goes back to what Joe Rogan said in his endorsement of Bernie. He's been consistent. I mean, he's been consistent in supporting Sandinista Marxists in Nicaragua and uh, Castro and company in Cuba and the Soviets uh, in the 80s. So he's been consistent in supporting uh, Marxist uh, communist regimes that repress their own people. There's no question he's been consistent. That's why he can't win. The question is, how did Dems win without him? And I don't think it's a question they've answered yet. This is the Dan Show. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prop Show. Yuval Levin is a uh, director of social, cultural, and constitutional studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And he uh, wrote this piece for the New York Times that folds into a new book that he has out of time to build. How did Americans lose faith in everything is the question he asks. 
This is about uh, the disintegration of the legitimacy of so many of our civic institutions that form the bedrock of our free society. He says the question that we do not ask as much as we need to, and we meaning like all of us in our various roles within some of these organizing institutions, schools, law enforcement, academia, the arts, obviously the military. The question, given my role here, how should I behave? That's what people who take an institution they're involved with seriously would ask. As a president or a member of Congress, a teacher or a scientist, a lawyer, a doctor, a pastor or a member, a parent or a neighbor, what should I do here? That's the question he suggests that uh, we're not asking enough and we need to if we want to restore these institutions, perhaps become a little bit less polarized and have a little bit more comedy among the body populace. For more on this topic, please to be joined by Yuval Levin. Again, his book, A Time to Build from Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Yuval Levin, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So um, I like the question, given my role here, how should I behave? It sort of commands kind of thoughtfulness and self-restraint that is generally lacking. But first diagnose the larger problem that I'm sort of insinuating what our institutions have become versus what they need to be. It's a book about the problems that our country faces that run deeper than ideology, that run to the core of our culture, our politics, our, our national identity. And they're problems that are rooted in failures of responsibility, so that at the top of so many of our institutions, we think naturally of politics, but as you say, also in in the professions, in education, and and even in American civic life, religion, elsewhere, we find people who are using institutions as platforms to get prominence, to perform, to be seen and heard, rather than thinking of institutions as being formative of them, as giving them a certain responsibility, providing them with certain obligations that they have to meet, so that rather than asking, given that I have this position, this responsibility, what should I do here? They're using the position, the responsibility to gain prominence in the big culture war fights that are sort of the national entertainment these days. And I think that recovering some idea of what institutional obligations are and what they ought to mean to us could help us to turn the temperature down on those fights. They don't go away. They're important. They matter. But if we first see that we owe one another something, then it becomes a little easier to understand how it is that we're supposed to live together in society that so often is divided. So does that mean uh, a little bit more focus on the micro, sort of where you live versus the macro? Exactly. Like, you know, know, yeah. Absolutely. Our life should be much more bottom-up than top-down. I'll tell you something. I, I live in Maryland. Local elections here for our county council very often now revolve around uh, what you think of Donald Trump. And that's crazy, right? That's a completely upside-down way to think about what the responsibility of our local officials are. If you begin from the bottom, if you begin by saying, we have these problems in common, we need to think about them together, here's what I would do, here's what you would do, then I think not only local government and not only national government, but a lot of what we do together in different institutions could function a little better. Rather than thinking this is a way to have the big national argument, we can think this is a way to address the immediate, direct, interpersonal problem that we might be able to help with here. Is there a sequencing that needs to be at play here? In other words, you need to rehabilitate one institution in order to rehabilitate the others, for example, family well, or faith as a predicate to some of these other institutions? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, that's exactly where I was going to start, because I think there is no alternative to uh, a recommitment to family and religion and local community 
Certainly that's where things start because those really are interpersonal. We see each other face to face. It's much harder in those situations to believe that we're just talking to sort of abstract, you know, left or right people that we can define away. So it is in those communities that are local and interpersonal that we might begin to address the kinds of problems we have and build up. But at the same time, you know, our larger institutions also consist of people who do work with each other face to face, who do interact. If members of Congress thought of each other as colleagues working together, more than thinking of each other as people on a stage performing for an outside audience that's far away and watching them on YouTube or on Twitter, those institutions would work better too. But I think there's no alternative to understanding our country's strength as working from the bottom up, from strong families and communities first. It seems uh, that we have a a fundamental uh, philosophical problem in that uh, both political parties sort of operate on, in different ways, but operate on the premise that um, we're here to maximize liberty. Uh, This is all freedom, and it's freedom from everything. It's, It's sort of treating liberty as a synonym with libertine. You see this in uh, bipartisan support for things like uh, marijuana legalization. And so if you're to be the atomized individual who's unrestrained from everything, then how can you then be persuaded to be part of these platoons of democracy that that these organizing institutions? I think you're exactly right. And, And it's part of why in this book I try to use this term institutions and the concept of the institution to think about the kinds of problems we have. Because ultimately our institutions are formative. From family on up, they form us in order to be able to be free. The idea that we can just be liberated and then everything will be fine is a mistake, I think, about human nature. It's a very deep mistake. Ultimately, we need first to be formed so that we can be free responsibly. And that's what we need to expect of our institutions, which means our politics, and not only our politics, needs to be about much more than just liberty. It needs to be about forming human beings in a way that can make us responsible and capable of liberty. And it also needs to be about unity and solidarity, about ways of drawing us together to address problems we have in common. Our Politics can do that. It's capable of it. But as you say, the language we have for our political life now so often is so thin and shallow that it is just about a kind of leave me alone idea of liberty that just isn't up to the challenge. It's not enough. It's not what liberty even really means. And a recovery of that, I think, has to begin with a recovery of institutional responsibility. And does that recovery come from perhaps some that had previously enjoyed expert status, some who had fancied themselves part of some vanguard class? Uh, exercising a bit of humility to say, you know what, we were wrong. Uh, we understand why this institution lost some legitimacy in, in uh, at least a portion of the public's mind. We want to involve so as to reform and reintroduce, whether that's exactly. whether that's schools or churches or, or anything else. That's right. I, I think that people have to see that their institutional roles are fundamentally modes of responsibility, so that rather than just empowering them, have whatever they want because they're the experts, it actually imposes obligations on them, and it imposes certain ways of making decisions and reaching judgments, whether that's through the professions, which are essential institutions in our society, whether it's through modes of uh, giving people the confidence of a larger public in their expertise. The reason we trust experts is because we believe that they are subject to rules and obligations and ultimately a set of responsibilities. If they behave as though that's not true, they shouldn't be surprised that their expertise loses its force and power. So that has to begin by a recovery of that sense of responsibility, first and foremost. I was struck uh, last week we talked about it on our show, corresponding with the timing of Jim Lehrer's passing at the age of 85, the venerable yeah. newsman. It was circulating online 
was Jim Lair's rules for journalism, the rules that he memorialized that informed how mm-hmm. he practiced his profession. There were some that were just really journalistic focused, like about using anonymous sources. And then there were others that were just a respect for your audience as well as your subject. You know, treat the subject of your piece the way you would want to be treated if you were the subject of this piece. Just simple things yeah. like that. It seems like uh, these a lot of these institutions you're talking about generally could use that sort of rebranding exercise exercise, establishing what the first principles of these institutions are and publishing them and saying to everybody, we're going to hold ourselves to these principles. That's what we want our brand to be. And we're going to work towards living these principles so people understand it to be our brand. I think it's absolutely right. Journalism is a great example. Journalism is a profession. It's a profession that when it's respected, it's respected because its members abide by certain rules. They subject themselves to a process of verification and confirmation. They only say what they know. They help the people who are listening to them understand understand the difference between what they know and what they don't. But when journalists take themselves out of that process, take themselves out of the institutions that actually empower them with any authority, and just put themselves out as individuals on Twitter, you know, expressing their opinion in an open kind of unformed conversation, they make it impossible for us to know when to trust them and why to trust them. And those kinds of rules that Jim Lehrer articulated and that a lot of traditional journalists try to live by, which you might say are implicit in their work when they're doing them well, those kinds of rules have gone by the wayside in a lot of journalistic institutions. And the public now has real trouble trusting journalists. In order to recover that, I do think that journalism and other professions are like this too, have to make explicit the rules they live by, the limits they have, the obligations that they impose on their members, and help the public see why they should be trusted. The one exception to the loss of confidence in institutions in America is the military. And I think the reason for that is not just that the military is very good at protecting the country, though it is, but because we know, we truly believe that the military forms men and women to be responsible, that it helps people internalize a set of responsibilities and obligations that they then take very, very seriously in their lives. That's how an institution builds confidence and ultimately gains the public's trust. He is Yuval Levin. He's a he's the director of social, cultural, and constitutional studies at the American Enterprise Institute, the editor of National Affairs, former member of the White House domestic policy staff under uh, George W. Bush, and his book, A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Yuval, thanks so much for joining us, and good luck with the book. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. So on Friday's show, we played uh, some of the pertinent uh, pertinent excerpts, that is, from... President Trump's speech at the March for Life, making history there by being the first sitting president to speak at the March for Life. But he wasn't the only one that had poignant remarks uh, talking about his accomplishments and his uh, actions in furtherance of the belief that life is a sacred thing from conception to natural death. You also had a number of other speakers I wanted to make sure weren't lost in uh, all of the impeachment business. Of course, the passing of Kobe Bryant over the weekend. Um, and, uh, you know, the, pre- the focus on the president with respect to that march. By the way, um, the, the left never, seen, never disappoints. Uh, Salon.com, a piece uh, decrying the March for Life as nothing more than a Trump rally. Well, I mean, excuse me, pardon me. 
what have the last four years of the so-called women's marches been? What, 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 uh, creed de corps for women to wear facsimiles of genitalia on their head? No, of course, they've all been about Trump, anti-Trump from the beginning. What was the genesis of the march uh, in 2017, President Trump's election and inauguration? So, I mean, goodness, the idea that the March for Life would be in part a recognition of a president making history by attending there to speak and also in part a president who has nominated two pro-life Supreme Court justices who were confirmed, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, in addition to some other 180 federal judges who are um, mainly, as far as I know, uh, strict constructionists, uh, including with respect to one of the worst decisions in the history of the Supreme Court. That's the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973. But uh, again, getting back to other important speakers there to put a human face on this issue. Uh, one of those was Melissa Oden, who's an abortion survivor. Listen to her story. Unfortunately, in 1977, my biological mother had a saline infusion abortion forced upon her. Over a five-day period, I soaked in a toxic salt solution being poisoned and scalded to death. But 42 years ago, God said, no, not this child. And I was accidentally born alive, weighing a little less than three pounds and facing a guarded future. But time after time, people said yes. Yes, Lord, we will not allow her to be left to die. Yes, we will love her. Years later, my birth mother and many members of my birth parents' families also would say yes. Yes, we love her too. Yes, we will be reconciled. And we have been. I am so blessed to have survived an abortion, to be loved into life by my adoptive parents, to be a wife and a mother to two amazing daughters, one of whom is here today. Olivia, you are so loved. And now to be reunited with my birth mother, Ruth, and many members of her family who've, who know that they are forgiven and that I love them. And contrary to what our culture that has been so deeply impacted by abortion says, abortion didn't empower my birth mother. It certainly didn't empower me. It didn't empower my own daughters who never would have lived if that abortion would have succeeded in ending my life. Life is what has empowered each and every one of us. Life is what has allowed healing. Life is what brought forth love and forgiveness. And life is what allowed the, fa- the pain of our family to be transformed into purpose. Life empowers us all. Who abortion has affected? I am more than a choice. I am more than someone else's reproductive right. I am a human being. Uh, really uh, incredible. And there's so many incredible stories like like uh, Miss Odin's uh, about that, that that point of what the pro-life movement is, love, reconciliation, forgiveness, healing. That was what was on display. Now contrast that with Fox News's town hall with uh, red diaper mannequin Pete Buttigieg on Sunday night, Chris Wallace moderating. Did you see this? The question that was put to him by the, uh, the head of... Uh, uh, Democrats for Life. <laughs> this uh, this uh, young lady, uh, unfortunately, apparently hasn't gotten the news. Uh, her name is Kristen Day. Hasn't gotten the news that uh, this Democrat Party in 2020, it isn't David Bonnier's party. Can you imagine? 
David Bonnier from Michigan, pro-life Democrat, was the House Minority Whip for Speaker Gephardt for the, from the early 90s to the early 2000s. Think about that when you hear this exchange between Miss Day and Mannequin Pete on the issue of whether or not there is a place for Miss Day in the Democrat Party of 2020. I am a proud pro-life Democrat. So do you want the support of pro-life Democrats, pro-life Democratic voters? There are about 21 million of us. And if so, would you support more moderate platform language in the Democratic Party to ensure that the party of diversity and inclusion really does include everybody? (laughs) Well, I respect where you're coming from, and I hope to earn your vote. But I'm not going to try to earn your vote by tricking you. Uh, I am pro-choice, and I believe that a woman ought to be able to make that decision. Here's what I... But I know that the difference of opinion that you and I have is one that we have come by honestly. And the best that I can offer, and it may win your vote, and if not, I understand. The best I can offer is that if we can't agree on where to draw the line, the next best thing we can do is agree on who should draw the line. And in my view, it's the woman who's faced with that decision in her own life. This is an interesting moment because President Trump spoke at the March to Life movement. He was the first president ever to actually appear at the March to Life movement. And I'm curious, Kristen, were you satisfied with the answer you got from the mayor? I was not because he did not answer the second part of my question. And the second part was the Democratic platform contains language that basically says that we don't belong. We have no part in the party because it says abortion should be legal up to nine months. The government should pay for it. And there's nothing that says that people have a diversity of views on this issue should be included in the party. In 1996 and several years after that, there was a language in the Democratic platform that said that we understand that people have very differing views on this issue, but we are a big tent party that includes everybody. And so therefore, we welcome you, people like me, into the party so we can work on issues that we agree on. So my question was, would you be open to language like that? in the the Democratic platform that really did say that our party is diverse and inclusive and we want everybody. Well, I support the position of my party uh, that this kind of medical care needs to be available to everyone. Uh, And I support the Roe versus Wade framework uh, that holds that early in pregnancy there are very few restrictions and late in pregnancy there are very few exceptions. And again, the best I can offer is that we may disagree on that very important issue Uh, And hopefully we will be able to partner on other issues. Hey, Kristen, it's not 1996 anymore. Uh, Yeah, we stated that we were for diversity and inclusion because we weren't. That's why we had to state it. Classic misdirection play. Unwilling to contemplate the idea of platform language that would include, hey, but we welcome people who disagree with us because there's opportunities to work on other issues uh, on which there is agreement. Um, Red Rover, Red Rover, Kristen Day, it's time to come over. This is the Dan Prof Show. Ooh, I'm a rebel just for kicks now. I've been feeling it since 1966 You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We had this interesting discussion on Friday with uh, USA Today columnist uh, James Bovard, author of a number of books, about the Real Clear ID, which is a federal mandate biometric identification card coming online by October of this year. And you will not be able to fly without the Real ID card if you don't otherwise have like a passport. Uh, and uh, Bovard just recounted his experience at the Maryland the Maryland version of the DMV, getting this real ID card and went through some of the concerns about uh, this sort of gathering of biometric and personal information that's being done by government agencies and how quickly are we going to get to an Orwellian world when it comes to uh, the surveillance state. For a counterpoint to that, uh, and specifically this AI company we were talking about, the Clearview AI, that was profiled in the New York Times, that essentially seeks to do or does do with pictures what Google does with words, which is to index, uh, index them across uh, all the web platforms, all the social media platforms. Clearview AI uh, would uh, 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 scrape, it essentially does, it scrapes, Pictures from Facebook, YouTube, Venmo, millions of other websites goes far beyond anything ever constructed by the United States government or the other Silicon Valley giants to provide a complete uh, profile dossier, if you will, of all public photos of a particular individual. I mean, uh, they have exponentially more images, three billion in total. It's reported exponentially more images than, say, does the FBI. And should this be something of concern for us? Well, for more on this and getting a bit of an alternative point of view on it, when it comes to the surveillance state and enterprises like Clearview AI, please be joined by David Scalzo, who's the managing partner and founder of Kiranaga Partners, which is a private equity concern. In the interest of full disclosure, I am an investor in Kiranaga, so factor that into this interview however you want. But I have no fiduciary responsibilities with Kiranaga, nor do I make or influence any investment decisions. David Scalzo, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan, thanks for having me on. So um, why is a Clearview AI and uh, uh, platforms like it, companies like it, that are doing more to aggregate all of our personal information, why is that something that sh- uh, is a benefit to humanity? Why is that going to be good for us and not something we should be concerned about you know, of the you know, Orwellian concern of, of the surveillance state? Well, you use the word humanity, and if you, if you go back to the beginning of humanity, Dan, you know, all humans are, number one, inventive, and number two, social. So we, we, um, whenever there's a problem in front of us, we come up with a better mousetrap, a better solution from the beginning of time today, today, and we share that information more broadly with our friends. And today we are seeing an explosion of that information that's being voluntarily put up on the Internet in a digital form so that millions and billions of people can share what we voluntarily put up there. And so that has allowed us to live longer, happier, healthier lives as a society, as a global society, as a matter of fact. And Google has done a wonderful job of being able to index that uh, more quickly and accurately. And just like you can Google words, now you can clear view photos and get access to more information. And remember, when you have more transparency, you have more trust, and when you have more trust, you can have more meaningful relationships, and that's a benefit to all of us. But that assumes uh, that there is um, complete disclosure, right? I mean, for example, Facebook is in a $35 billion class action lawsuit regarding alleged misuse of facial recognition data. 
uh, here uh, where I live in Illinois. Um, and uh, and so the, the obviously the argument is the complaint is that Facebook wasn't transparent, what did not fully disclose what it was doing with its facial recognition features. Yeah, well, I, I can't speak to Facebook in particular and what they do. And, you know, many uh, providers that we use, you know, they say it's going to they're going to keep it private and then maybe they don't. I can't talk with Facebook. But if we think about it from a government surveillance state, you know, Every authoritarian government that's ever existed, what do they want to do? They want to hoard resources and keep them hidden from their citizens. They want to hoard water. They want to hoard gasoline. They want to hoard gold, hoard food, hoard guns, and keep them away from it. The next material resource, the next resource that they are hoarding right now is data and information. And if only your government has that information, then they are subject to misuse, whether it's uh, um, falsifying, manipulating the information, or hiding certain uh, uh, pieces of data. So when it's hidden, when it's not allowed to be used, that's when we need to be more afraid. The wonderful thing about the United States of America is we have this Bill of Rights, and the First Amendment says you don't have to be hidden. The First Amendment actually says you can speak your mind, you can practice your religion, you can hang out whoever you whoever you want with, in the public, in the open, and the government cannot discriminate against you. I wanna, that's a powerful thing. I want to pick up on that discussion of big tech and big government when we come back with David Scales, our managing partner, founder of Kiranaga Partners. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking about uh, big tech and big government, the surveillance state and technological innovations like uh, Clearview AI, Clearview Artificial Intelligence, a new company that essentially indexes all of a person's uh, photos across uh, thousands, perhaps millions of websites into uh, one uh, complete file. Uh, David Scales is a managing partner and founder of Kiranaga Partners, which is a, a private equity concern out of New York State. And, uh, Dave, we're talking about the big tech and big government and big tech being a check on big government. So big government doesn't hoard all the information but uh, when or, or data collection. But when does big tech become a servant of big government and make uh, the uh, make make the situation even more frightening? I mean, we've seen this play out with some of the other big tech companies where not just doing the bidding of the U.S. government, but doing the bidding of foreign governments like Google and the Chinese. Oh, it's certainly a concern. There's no doubt about it. Because remember, the opposite of free market capitalism is not uh, competition or cooperation. The opposite is collusion. And so that's what we need to worry about is collusion between the big government regulators and big tech. And so it's very interesting that, you know, Google, now that they're so big, is calling on regulation. Of course, they want regulation because that uh, prevents smaller providers from getting in and, and providing new services. So, uh, you know, startups like Clearview that have a superior product actually broaden freedom across uh, across everyone. Well, and I saw you give an interview to this uh, topic on CNBC. And one of the points you made is about uh, connectedness. You were speaking a little bit to that uh, before the break. But but give us the argument for how Clearview AI and companies like this, these uh, tech innovators, actually make us more connected in a, in a positive way, not just in a getting our dopamine hit way. 
Yeah, absolutely. So again, when there's more transparency, there's more trust. When there's more trust, there's more meaningful connectivity. So when we see other people as humans, when we see other people as coaches for the basketball team or someone that goes to tailgate at the local football game or someone that's part of the community at charity events, and these are all the types of photos that are up on the Internet or or see them as a partner at a law firm, what we do then is we see each individual as a complete human being for all their goodness and all their flaws and we can have more authentic, real conversations. Remember how biases happen, how um, exploitation happens? It happens when you see someone else as an object, when you try to deny their humanity, when you try to essentially take information away from them. And Clearview does the exact opposite. Clearview personifies and humanizes people, allowing for deeper, more meaningful relationships. But but then if if Clearview is going to be a technology uh, used by law enforcement, and certainly that would be uh, an obvious application, then don't we need our policymakers to be very circumscript, uh, circumspect with respect to laws that govern the uh, uh, the aggregation, the possession, the uh, deployment of of uh, information that's collected by a, a a platform like Clearview AI. You know, Peter Diamandis is the leading thinker on this. He says we're only a few years away from having one billion Internet-connected devices. People call it the Internet of Things. He calls it the Internet of Everything, where you're going to be able to know everything in any geography at any time. All that data is digital and coming online. There's going to be an, um, auto, uh, autonomous cars driving down your street. There's going to be FedEx drones flying over your head. There's credit card data, background check data. This information is out there. Now, the key is to make sure it's widely available to people so that people um, aren't unjustly accused or have false accusations. Because remember, that happens when there's a lack of information, not when there's full disclosure. What about concerns? uh, And this was a conversation, again, I had with uh, James Bovar, concerns about hacking and obtaining uh, and, and, and making it more easy for those who would uh, steal people's identities and so forth? Well, the, the first thing that helps prevent against hacking, of course, is when people can check on their own data. You know, I almost think there needs to be a 28th Amendment uh, to the Constitution that says we have a right to our own data, that people have to share with us what data they have, including the federal government, have to share what information they're collecting from us uh, so it doesn't get weaponized against us. I think the most complicated issue is the one you discussed, though, is what do you do with historical information? Uh, historical information may be uh, wrong. You may have been falsely accused of something or it may be irrelevant. You may have shoplisted when you were 15 and now it doesn't matter. And so the complication is this. Do you leave it out in the open or do you manipulate it and hide it and uh, pretend it doesn't matter anymore? In both scenarios, it's a difficult question as to what is right and who's allowed to manipulate it or or what you should go forward. And as a society, we need to... um, we need to have a debate on those issues. Well, and also, too, I mean, you've got this uh, 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 hodgepodge of laws at the local, state and federal level, right, because we live in this federalist system. And so, for example, in the city of Oakland just recently announced that you're not going to allow you're not allowed to ask a prospective renter if uh, if you are a property owner, you're not a rentee, you're not a, a, a allowed to ask that rentee, that prospective rentee if they have a criminal record. So, but if, if everybody's personal information is sort of open source on the Internet of everything that you were describing, then you won't need to ask that question. You'll just be able to access it. 
No, that's 100% right. And remember, what, what essentially Oakland is doing in this scenario is they're saying, we want to prevent the sharing of information. We, want, uh, we don't want transparency. We want the exact opposite. And what happens is a lack of information leads to bias and discrimination. So what Oakland is actually doing is creating what I would say is a worse society. If you actually are transparent about it and you know someone's got a criminal record, um, well, you may also know that they're currently a member of a certain church or that they've reformed, and you're more likely to treat them as a full-fledged human rather than just a criminal record. So so the open source of information gives you the three-dimensional picture of the person, and maybe maybe you're willing to make a consideration you wouldn't make if you were just judging on whether or not they checked that, have you ever been convicted of a crime box? Oh, that's an interesting point. But what about uh, so so, you know, your your sort of uh, social and, and, and personal information. What about uh, personal financial information, though, things like uh, bank accounts and, and those sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, I, it's uh, it's a difficult uh, question, right? If you would have said 20 years ago, what if everyone knew every purchase that you did? You know, you might be kind of freaked out about it. But there are many people who use credit cards for everything and basically order 90% of their life from Amazon. There are people that know all your financial information right now. They're called Visa and Amazon. And so, um, you know, that day is today. Now, whether that should be shared with everyone and would anyone care? I don't know. Interesting. Very interesting discussion. David Scalza, managing partner, founder of Kiranaga Partners, a private equity concern out of New York State. David, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, John McCain's widow, Cindy, Cindy McCain, was uh, at uh, something called the State of the World 2020 Conference in Florida recently. Give her a review of the world in 2020. Boy, these conferences are really something, too. All of these uh, celebrities, sort of political slash expert types that go away for these ideas conferences and pontificate about tedious lives you and I live and how uh, they can improve our lives for us. Remarkable statement that uh, Mrs. McCain offered on Jeffrey Epstein. Listen to Cindy McCain on Jeffrey Epstein and uh, what's uh, coming out about Epstein now, uh, even in his death. Hashtag Epstein didn't kill himself. Uh, and uh, those who were uh, accomplices in his human trafficking operation. A girl from my daughter's high school was one of his victims. Mm. That's how close to home it came to us, for us. Hmm. It hides in plain sight. Epstein was hiding in plain sight. We all knew about him. We all knew what he was doing. But we had no one that was, no um, uh, legal aspect that would go after him. They were afraid of him. For whatever reason, they were afraid of him. All of a sudden, someone said, B.S., we're not afraid of you anymore and what you're doing. is not only wrong, it's illegal, it's, you know, all those things. Um, it's, it's like a house of cards now. It's going to start tumbling, believe me. And these guys, if they don't leave the country, number one, uh, they're going to get caught. And, they're gonna, and, and they, not only will they get caught, but they're going to be made examples of. And that's exactly what we should be doing uh, with these guys, especially. Um, in my opinion, if, you know, I know there's questions, but uh, Epstein's a chicken sh- for doing what he did. <laughs> he should have faced the music, that one. He should have. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that's an applause line. You, you just said we all knew what he was doing. 
we all knew what he was doing. You said a girl that your daughter went to school with was one of his victims. Um, if only we knew somebody powerful that could have raised the red flag at Epstein, that could have alerted law enforcement and scrambled some resources to bring this guy's operation down. I mean, I don't know, if only, like, Cindy, you were married to a United States senator, for example. Don't you find these dissociative episodes of people in power oftentimes rather convenient? We used to have this, uh, one of the great impresarios of this little ruse was uh, Mayor Richard M. Daley, the son of Richard J. Daley, when he was the mayor of Chicago for 20 years. He would get up on the podium and he'd bang the, the drum about uh, schools and school performance. You know, we, we need to do something. Somebody needs to do something about reforming the Chicago public school system. Well, um, Mayor, uh, how about you, since you're in charge of the Chicago public school system? He, he's just an innocent bystander. Cindy McCain conceding, we all knew what he was doing, Epstein. A victim of his went to school with my daughter and I'm an innocent bystander, too. Yeah. You wonder why the elites have lost so much credibility. One, because so many of them never deserved any and it just became exposed. And number two, because they've shown themselves to be cowards that cover their cowardice of the past with virtue signaling in the present and get away with tough talk at these silly little conferences like Cindy McCain did. Well, that stuff isn't flying anymore and good on it. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, over the weekend, White House defense team offered some real rhetorical flourishes in addition to point-by-point counters on both the process and substantive arguments of the House managers. I thought uh, this from White House counsel Pat Cipollone, who, by the way, interestingly, Covington Catholic High School graduate. How about that? How about that for symmetry and irony? Pat Cipollone on the Democrats essentially doing what they've accused the president of wanting to do in 2020. The fact that they came here for 24 hours and hid evidence from you is further evidence that they don't really believe in the facts of their case. That this is, for all their talk about election interference, that they're here to perpetrate the most massive interference in an election in American history. And we can't allow that to happen. They're uh, trying to perpetrate an election interference by removing Trump from office and uh, correspondingly the ballot. Uh, Also this, and this was a bit uh, lost in some of the coverage, but I thought this was an important moment because it goes to the star of the Democrat slash media show, Adam Schiff. Uh, It was uh, deputy counsel, deputy counsel of the president of the United States, Patrick Philbin, and uh, going over a piece of evidence that hasn't been turned over by the House managers yeah, to this point, a piece of evidence from their investigation. And uh, what that portends for Adam Schiff and, by extension, House managers' credibility. Uh, why no interest in the whistleblower anymore? Why can't we get evidence of the testimony from the intelligence community's inspector general? We know from the letter that the inspector general of the intelligence community sent that he thought that the whistleblower had political bias. 
We don't know exactly what the political bias was because the Inspector General testified in the House committees in an executive session, and that transcript is still secret. It wasn't transmitted up to the House Judiciary Committee. We haven't seen it. We don't know what's in it. We don't know what he was asked and what he revealed about the whistleblower. Isn't that odd? Isn't that odd? And yet, uh, even after the transcript of the July 25th call between President Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine was released, Adam Schiff was still calling for the whistleblower to testify until a couple weeks later when he wasn't. But yes, we would love to talk directly with the whistleblower. We'll get the unfiltered testimony of that whistleblower. We don't need the whistleblower. What changed? At first, Manager Schiff agreed we should hear the unfiltered testimony from the whistleblower. But then he changed his mind. And he suggested that it was because now we had the transcript. But the second clip there was from uh, September 29th, which was four days after the transcript had been released. But there was something else that came into play. And that was something that Manager Schiff had said earlier when he was asked about whether he had spoken to the whistleblower. Uh, We have not spoken directly with the whistleblower. Uh, We would like to. And it turned out that that statement was not truthful. And that's why no longer any interest in having the whistleblower testify. Boy, that really tore apart the House manager's case, presented over 24 hours in just a little over the two hours they had on Saturday. Uh, I don't even know why they need to come back. I'd move to close their uh, case in chief, their defense, and... uh, have Mitch McConnell call this for a vote sooner rather than later. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Ken Masugi. He's a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. He's an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, glad to be here. Well, you're a piece in amgreatness.com about uh, uh, trying to uh, draw the fine line between American tragedy and farce. Uh, couldn't be more timely given what we've seen uh, presented uh, in the Senate by House Democrats in particular, how the House managers in particular. And um, you just you, your piece, though, goes more generally to sort of where we are with political culture, uh, a political culture driven by leftist progressives of a you work and I eat nature. Uh, yes, uh, it's been a long time coming, and it's the culmination of uh, leftist progressivism over decades well, uh, so, you know, expound on that for us. Uh, you know, it's the culmination of, of something that's been uh, at a foot well, for many I decades. Mean, Nancy Pelosi uh, now quoting the Constitution more fervently than uh, any conservative originalist. Uh, but, of course, her understanding of the Constitution is intended uh, to uh, persecute uh, Trump and any conservative Republicans. And, of course, the other measure of uh, whether uh, a president is legitimate is whether they extend the leftist uh, view of politics. And that uh, arose most strongly in Franklin Roosevelt's four elections to the presidency. Uh, Of course, two of those occurred uh, in the midst of war. Uh, Well, certainly the first, uh, the the, the fourth, rather. 
uh, and threats of war before that. And basically, in his first inaugural speech, he uh, compared himself to uh, the Lord's anointed and uh, insisted that uh, he be uh, his uh, desires, his uh, legislative program, be treated as though um, he were a general of a nation being under uh, uh, being attacked. Um, so there's been that mentality on the left of uh, centralized military power as as the metaphor for uh, a presidency and a, a, a leftist progressive program of a centralized economy, uh, completely regulated and. Uh, uh, really a, a, a suppression of individual rights uh, on all levels. That this, um, uh, you, you talk about this in the, the language of co- coerced love. Coerced love is what the progressive left seeks. And uh, I wonder how you'd apply that to the uh, impeachment context. Uh, well, uh, there's this notion of uh, viewing Trump as, as an illegitimate president on various levels and his rhetoric, his language, um, and uh, it's uh, upsetting the table, kicking over the table. Uh, And there's much to that. And the Democrats identify that, uh, these old patterns that Obama and regrettably Bush, the Bushes, uh, uh, collaborated in. Um, And uh, what, uh, but I think people elected Trump uh, being disgusted at the prospect of another Clinton or another Bush, uh, precisely because he turned away from the failures of both uh, Republican and Democratic administrations, uh, and that uh, people don't appreciate both the courage and the uh, uh, insight of uh, Trump in advocating uh, another way of looking at politics that defies the uh, 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 bipartisan agreement on policies that people, um, many people, perhaps even a majority, regard as disastrous, ranging from uh, immigration policy to trade uh, and, of course, political correctness. Do you um, you think that um, this is something that the Democrats are still wrestling with with Bernie Sanders, and uh, they've they've got them they they really have not provided a uh, an outlet valve for the populist impulses of a Marxist nature in their party, and so Bernie Sanders has uh, gained momentum yet again, uh, just as he uh, put up a strong showing in 2016, and they're really in a bit of a trick bag. They they can't have Bernie Sanders, but they need that energy and the support behind him. And how do they navigate that? Yes, that's a very good insight, I think. And that, that the frustration of uh, uh, Sanders being uh, suppressed by the Democratic establishment uh, has made that resent back in 2016 has made that resentment grow even further. Uh, and it, in fact, it led a, a lot of Obama voters to support Trump. Uh, I think there's some good polling information on that. Yeah, uh, It sounds funny to people who are accustomed simply to thinking standard left-right terms about our politics, but that's not the way many voters look at it. They look in terms of uh, change, uh, support for the workers, 
uh, of America. And that, that's why Trump, I think, was ingenious in saying he wanted to turn the Republican Party into the Workers' Party. He is Ken Masugi, senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University. And uh, you want to check out his piece that I'll tweet at, at Don Prof Show, distinguishing between American tragedy and farce. That's uh, amgreatness.com. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. I, I enjoyed it. Thanks. Take care. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, we've got to tackle uh, all of the uh, competing opinions about the potential lethality of the coronavirus and whether or not we're facing a pandemic, particularly since uh, my co-host of the show I do in Chicago in the mornings is basically outfitted in one of those uh, spacesuits from the E.T. movie because of uh, the incidence of uh, now five reported cases in the United States, including one in Chicago of the coronavirus, people being struck struck, uh, with the coronavirus. Uh, U.S. government reported over the weekend working to evacuate American citizens by air from the Chinese city of Wuhan, according to uh, uh, people familiar with the effort to get that airlifted, people airlifted out. So uh, you had uh, a Chinese doctor working at a hospital in Wuhan, China, uh, age 62 years old, die on Saturday morning treating uh, after having treated patients infected with the uh, virus in question. And so on the one hand, you have people suggesting this is really getting out of control and the Chinese authorities' response has been too slow and not comprehensive enough, not to mention you're dealing with Chinese communists. Can you really believe their numbers when it comes to the numbers of the number of individuals who've been uh, afflicted as well as the number of official, uh, the number of individuals who've died uh, on Sunday? Uh, there were experts confirmed about a, a thousand suspected infection cases under monitoring in Wuhan, China. But there was a nurse there reported in uh, uh, one of the British papers, I think it's The Guardian, that uh, it was more like 100,000. So, you know, who knows what sort of the, the communist multiplier is in terms of uh, understatement. Uh, but here, back here, we're talking about American public health officials. It's worth noting that Anthony Fauci, who is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, said Sunday the American public shouldn't worry about the virus outbreak in China. It's a very, very low risk to the United States, he said during a radio interview. It's something we as public health officials need to take very seriously. It isn't something the American public needs to worry about or be frightened about because we have ways of preparing and screening of people coming in from China, and we have ways of responding like we did uh, with this one in one case in Seattle, Washington, who had traveled to China and brought back the infection. And that's the same uh, response you're getting from authorities in Chicago who have uh, siloed the individual who came back from China, reportedly caring for her uh, elderly father and was struck with the virus. She's been isolated in a suburban hospital. Uh, Want to go to something Michael Fomento wrote about in the New York Post, though, on the topic. He's been writing about uh, epidemic hysterias for 30 years. He said, look, um, you know, usually you get mass hysteria over these outbreaks. 
because the same patterns repeat themselves. The best remedy, he writes, for all epidemic hysteria is perspective. How is this new outbreak different and thus potentially more dangerous from other diseases we've dealt with in the past or are dealing with now? Uh, Wuhan is repeatedly labeled deadly, but so is every other virus most people know about. But is it especially deadly? Again, before the updated numbers over the weekend, there were 600 cases confirmed with 17 reported deaths. Uh, That's um, probably understated, um, but still... A comparison with the U.S. flu death rate is, uh, you know, suggests that it's not as lethal as uh, even the viruses that we deal with on a seasonal basis. As a share of hospitalizations, the regular flu death rate is eight and a half to seventeen percent in America, according to the CDC, which is considerably higher than for Wuhan. Uh, but counting all estimated illnesses reported and estimated, it's it's much lower. What we can say for sure is that Wuhan will be a lot worse in China simply because healthcare there is vastly inferior. It appears that, like flu, Wuhan usually kills through often treatable secondary infections. Well, treatable in the West. You'd be surprised at how many potentially deadly diseases, malaria, TB, for example, uh, Americans get that wreak havoc in much of the rest of the world but kill essentially none of us. It also appears that most likely... Those most likely to die of the Wuhan virus fit the same profile as flu fatalities, people over 65, those with compromised immune systems, those with serious preexisting conditions. He points out two of the 17 who died in Wuhan were 89-year-olds with preexisting conditions. The youngest was 48, suffering from diabetes and a stroke. Contagiousness is highly important, of course, but so far there's no evidence that Wuhan, first reported more than three weeks ago, is more contagious than influenza or spreads much differently. Uh, in point of fact, another uh, uh, offering on this is uh, that perhaps the uh, most unsafe place you can go is a U.S. hospital. Uh, Betsy McCaughey is the chairman of the Committee to Reduce infectious, uh, Infection Deaths, and uh, she had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about U.S. hospitals and comparing them uh, unfavorably well, comparing them, and it's unfavorable, to uh, Canadian hospitals in 2003 as deaths from SARS, remember that virus, soared in the province of Ontario. She writes, 77% of people infected with SARS there in Ontario contracted it at the hospital. They were patients, visitors, healthcare workers. Another 17% got it at home, often from a healthcare worker who lived with them. In short, SARS started as a travel infection but rapidly became a hospital infection because of lax infection control standards, the same laxity is found in most U.S. hospitals today. So uh, it's really a situation if you stay away from those who are infected or those who are infected being in environments that are not uh, properly infection controlled, then you're likely not to have exposure. Uh, But she does point out uh, something that U.S. hospitals need to address Poor adherence to infection control protocols was to blame in, in uh, Toronto and Ontario. Staff failed to wear masks and disposable gowns, didn't wear face shields while inserting breathing tubes down patients' airways. After the initial Toronto patient was finally admitted to a hospital room, it took more than five hours for him to be isolated. Sloppy infection control is not just a Canadian problem. A June 2017 literature review of shortcomings in U.S. emergency rooms on the lack of adequate distance between patients, use of contaminated equipment, Failure to use shields to protect healthcare workers who are intubating patients and failure to ask coughing patients to wear masks. So um, 
if you want to talk about uh, the spread of infections, it's those secondary infections that both Ms. McCahe referenced uh, using the Canadian example and uh, uh, Michael Fomento was referencing in the New York Post talking about uh, these uh, outbreaks more generally. Um, now, and that's not to say there are not those that are predicting uh, more dire consequences here. In point of fact, Dr. Eric Fiegel-Ding, a Harvard-trained epidemiologist who taught at the school for 15 years, he had a Twitter thread looking at uh, this uh, over the weekend saying he was saying the virus uh, was approaching thermonuclear pandemic level bad. I really hate to be the epidemiologist who has to admit this, but we are potentially faced with an unchecked pandemic that the world has not seen since the 1918 Spanish influenza. And he goes through a data analysis why he suggests that Uh, this, of course, runs counter to um, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. So it's a you know, competition in terms of whose expert opinions do you believe. But it seems to me that uh, going uh, based on previous instances that are close approximation like SARS or MERS, boy, I don't know. I'm, I'm inclined to believe uh, what Makahe and Fomento have to say about this, at least until there's a lot more evidence to the contrary outside of the nation of China. This is the Dan Prof Show. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Because they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, and we have a special guest on this installment of Campus Speed. We're pleased to be joined by Samuel Abrams. He's a professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. You won't hear those two organizations on very many people's CVs together. Sam Abrams, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Well, uh, always uh, happy to uh, strike a hopeful note for higher education and uh, your op-ed at, uh, in The Spectator seems to do that. And uh, at Sarah Lawrence College, no less, you were, of course, uh, excoriated a couple of years back when you documented the uh, decided left imbalance of college administrators on college campuses, um, much like the professorate. Uh, and uh, but but now you're suggesting in this piece that um, the new crop of students that you're experiencing at Sarah Lawrence actually want to hear the full range of opinions when it comes to the salient political or policy issues of the day. That's exactly right. And this is not something I I was sure was going to happen. Um, Since the blow-up occurred at Sarah Lawrence uh, about a year and a half ago or two years ago, uh, I've been invited to speak to quite a few schools around the country. And whenever I'm there, uh, it's been great. Uh, I often have security. There are occasionally protests. But students line the rooms. They pack the halls. They want to hear what is going on. Uh, on their campuses today. Why are things seemingly so out of control? Why are things so tense, so uncomfortable? Uh, Why can't they ask the questions they want to ask? And we usually have these very nice sessions that run way, way, way too long. And then once they sort of kick us out of the room, students hang out for hours with me to talk about their own lives and their own experiences and how frustrating it is to be on their campus and not feel comfortable talking about, you know, controversial subjects. 
this fall and now this spring at, at Sarah Lawrence, I wasn't sure how that was going to play out, Sarah Lawrence being notoriously left of center. And to my absolute surprise, shock, and uh, pleasure, um, students from a, you know, around campus have continuously come to me and said, I don't like what's going on. I want to hear more. I want viewpoint diversity. And that has been really thrilling. So, I mean, is your experience uh, both at Sarah Lawrence and then generally through your travels and your speaking, is, is, is it your sense that this is just a shrill minority that's crowding out the larger, more reasonable majority? I think that's exactly what's going on. You have, and, you know, this does not negate my earlier concerns and, you know, call to arms about what's going on among the professorate and the administrative class. At Yale, for instance, they just got rid of their Western Civ art history yes. uh, course. This is a huge problem. Uh, and, you know, it certainly uh, exists among the, uh, the administrative class, which still tries to brainwash our students, and it brainwashes them at orientation programs, through its diversity and engagement initiatives, through the residence halls. It's everywhere. But as I talk about it and push back, and as many, many other professors around the country are beginning to push back and say, this isn't good, this is a problem, people are beginning to listen. And more and more students, I think, are feeling comfortable and emboldened to say, I don't like this. This is not something I'm comfortable with. A uh, perfect example of that is many, many students come to campus and are immediately told they have to talk about their sexuality and how they want to identify and talk about pronouns. Um, I have dozens of students in my office constantly saying, I don't want to talk about that. I don't know what I think. I may not have had experiences to even feel comfortable talking about these sorts of things. And, um, you know, by having people like me speak out and, and, and professors around the country and uh, initiatives like the Heterodox Academy, um, students hear it, they see it, and they're beginning to, to demand more. And uh, I'm very proud of them for it. it uh, it's really, really thrilling to watch this. Are you seeing demonstrably less uh, evidence of identitarian politics on campus and campuses? Yeah, I mean, the data is showing that, you know, we're nowhere near the 60s uh, in terms of people identifying to the left. They're overwhelmingly identifying not, as either centrist or just rejecting the parties entirely. Um, this is not the case for slightly older students, who I think were really in the midst of some of these culture wars. But these younger students are curious. They want to know a little bit more. In fact, uh, one of the interesting things that the data has picked up is that they're less uh, likely to denounce religion, which has been a little bit of a shift. Uh, recently, it's been this gradual decline of people saying they're agnostic or atheist and they don't like anything uh, about religion. This younger group, this, this Gen Z group, uh, is more open to it. Uh, so we are definitely seeing uh, a shift uh, going on. And I think it's a reaction, and I think a good one, to the closed-mindedness and sort of the, the, I guess I would say, the mob-like tendencies that have existed on campuses recently. Uh, when we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit more about a couple of trends that I still think are pushing against uh, what you're seeing on campus, as encouraging as sure. it is. Uh, we're talking to Sam Abrams. He's a professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College and visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. We'll be back with more right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. This is the Dan Proft Show. Well, 
We're back with Samuel Abrams. He's a professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College and visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. And he was uh, uh, regaling us with uh, stories of uh, tolerance and intellectual curiosity on college campuses, both Sarah Lawrence and those that he travels to. And so those are encouraging notes. And then yet, uh, not to put a blanket on that, Sam, but uh, my alma mater, Northwestern University, uh, the student government there, couldn't see its way clear to vote in support of a free speech resolution that was introduced after a shameful episode on the campus last year when US, when uh, former U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions spoke mm-hmm. there and you had uh, protests to the point of uh, inciting mayhem, to the point of people actually being arrested or at least ticketed for uh, ridiculous and immature and, and borderline violent behavior on campus. And, and yet at Northwestern, again, um, and this was brought by actually a writer for the Daily Northwestern newspaper that was a mm-hmm. part of the shameful episode. The Daily Northwestern apologizing for covering the event that the way they, they did because some people were offended or felt unsafe by the newspaper's coverage on campus. So for every uh, situation, like you say, uh, is going on at Sarah Lawrence, you have the Yale Renaissance art class being canceled. You have what's going on at Northwestern. Sure. So one of the things about Northwestern that still leaves me baffled is the ignorance of some of the students where I remember they were protesting and then they were complaining that they were protesting in public, but their photographs and their likeness couldn't be shared, even though they were engaged in a public act, which is just shocking and and, and so ignorant and so very, very scary. Um, And and to your point, we're not out of the woods here at all. Um, There are still quite a few students who can, you know, are either lefty progressive or can be brainwashed and conditioned uh, heavily by this administrative class. I'm not saying that suddenly Sarah Lawrence is this viewpoint diversity panacea where we all sit around and you know, are respectful and, and listening. Uh, that would be very nice if, if, if that could happen. Um, I'm simply saying that the trend is beginning to shift a little bit. We're beginning to see some changes. We're beginning to see uh, pushback on, on some of that stuff. It's not going to be everywhere. It, it, it's going to take some time. Uh, Chicago, uh, south of Northwestern, has been pretty good at that. Uh, I think Northwestern did not handle itself particularly well. Uh, and this is not to say that Sarah Lawrence will not have similar troubles uh, this uh, upcoming term. Um, my point is to say that this was a shockingly positive ray of hope uh, you know, for, for a campus, at least, uh, that is historically left of center and very active, to have over 10% of the student body say to me, I want to know what's going on. I want to hear the other side. That, to me, I took as a, a good sign. We're, you know, I'm not certainly suggesting that we're out of the woods yet at all. I, I, I was just thinking about the like institutional infrastructure. You know, the inertia against uh, what you're experiencing at Sarah Lawrence, the positive uh, experience you're describing. Um, go through the go to the K through 12 level. New York City uh, public schools have declared all children that all children learn all skills at exactly the same pace. Uh, yeah, the, uh, that uh, the goal is to make everyone the same. We have to ban any sort of outside tutoring, any sort of extracurricular activity, no independent reading or watching YouTubes, uh, no parents answering their child's why questions unless, unless they've checked their handy-dandy DOE issue timelines mm-hmm. and ensured all their children in the five boroughs are having the exact same questions answered, so on and so forth. I mean, the idea that um, uh, the only way somebody outperforms somebody in the classroom is those sort of the same view of the left has of somebody out earning somebody in the marketplaces, you had to cheat or you had to have special privileges. And so we're going to eliminate those at the K through 12 level. And we're going to retard the intellectual growth of some and push too hard with respect to the intellectual growth of others to get that nice, uh, nice center cut mediocrity. 
Yes. No, it's, it's a huge problem. I think it's a remarkably illiberal worldview. Uh, and in this case, liberalism is a good thing. Um, the marketplace is going to be the marketplace. Uh, certain people are going to have certain skills that others are simply not. Uh, you know, I may want to play the cello, but I'm not going to be able to do that. I could pay for lessons. I could find someone to teach me something. I'm not going to become a virtuoso uh, cellist anytime soon, and that was never in the cards. And that's okay. Uh, you know, for, you know, I, I think that it's a huge mistake to try to reduce everyone that way. Uh, you know, one of the things that we talk about quite a bit at the American Enterprise Institute is recognizing that higher ed and, and certain forms of education are not uh, ideal for everyone. Trades are very important as well. We really do have a huge diversity of potential careers, a huge diversity of skills and strengths, and we should work with our students to match them up to what they're most comfortable with so they can shine. This idea of reducing everyone to the common denominator or to the mean in this case is just a horrible idea and, and, and one that I think is going to slow innovation uh, and, 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 and basically slow what has made this country great for so many years. But it, but it sort of uh, incubates uh, young people, kids, going through a system like New York City public schools or Chicago public schools, a lot of public school systems, to, to think that way. That's that they become acclimated to, and then they expect that that will, that, that sort of identitarian, everybody goes at the same pace, will continue to persist either in the real world or in, in higher ed. So I hope you're wrong about that. And, and, and the reason is if you look at the sort of mythos surrounding both Chicago and New York, uh, and it's even in the comic books, when you think about uh, you know, the Spider-Man character in a, in a barrel looking uh, longingly at, at the big glimmering you know, shiny towers of Manhattan, um, you know, there's long been this sort of desire to work hard uh, and, and, and get ahead and try to figure something out. So you know, that, those sorts of policies run counter to the very sort of zeitgeist and ethos, if you will. Of, of places like New York and Chicago, which are about, you know, doing the best you can, working really hard, and making it. Uh, you know, there's so many songs about if you can make it anywhere, and, and you, know, you can do it in New York City, and, uh, and, I, and Chicago is very, very similar in that respect. So, you know, the schools may be doing this, but I'm not so sure they're going to be able to overcome that larger uh, myth. Okay, so that's, so that's pressure from underneath, K through 12. What about pressure from above, corporate America? Uh, give you an example of what I mean. Morgan Stanley uh, on campus at University of Alabama holding uh, program, uh, programs for students uh, specifically for black, Hispanic, Native American and LGBT plus students. So, you know, diversity is important in this case. Uh, and uh, programs have been working very, very hard to make sure there is some diversity of perspective in the room. And, and, and I don't think that's entirely a bad thing. It just has to be with most things balanced. Uh, you know, you want diverse experiences for diverse investment strategies. So that in and of itself does not strike me as a problem, especially if there have been systematic issues with achievement in certain communities or access for certain communities. It's just if we, you know, we're too strong and too extreme. And that's sort of been the, the, uh, the, the thrust of some of this research for years. Um, in and of itself, talking about social justice is not a problem. It's a problem when it's taken to, again, an extreme and to the point, you know, to the point that it excludes others and becomes sort of dangerous. Uh, the idea of bringing people in to, to make sure diverse views are in, the view, you know, are in the boardroom does not actually bother me. He is Samuel Abrams, professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Check out his piece at spectator.us, which I will tweet out. A new mob at Sarah Lawrence College, the, the good kind. Samuel Abrams, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And just uh, picking up on the uh, last part of the conversation we were having with uh, Professor Sam Abrams from uh, Sarah Lawrence College, which was a great discussion, but on corporate America specifically. Interesting, uh, not just the Morgan Stanley example I mentioned on the campus, University of Alabama, this uh, announcement from Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon at uh, Davos last week. Here's why uh, the uh, elites that were at Davos uh, couldn't concern themselves too much with, uh, say, impeachment. And this was actually funny, just as a quick aside. Uh, Zinni Mitten Bados, who is the uh, editor of The Economist, she was on with Fareed Zakaria over the weekend. And uh, he was asking her about, uh, you know, how much did uh, the prospect of uh, President Trump's future, how much did that weigh on the minds and uh, center the conversations at Davos with all the power brokers? What is your sense of what they are making of this impeachment? You know, to be honest, I don't think they're paying a huge amount of attention to it. I think because, as you say, the outcome is all but foregone, uh, they are moving beyond that. And I was struck not only how little attention was being paid to the impeachment trial, but quite how many people seem to be taking almost as given that there might be a second term for President Trump. So the mood, I think, certainly amongst the business types in Davos was you know, get ready for a second term. And and literally no one spoke to me about impeachment. It's sort of remarkable. And yet uh, what uh, dominated Davos other than President Trump touting the performance of the U.S. economy during his tenure? Uh, Greta Thunberg. The theme was climate alarmism. That's not the way they describe it, but that's what it is on its merits. And pronouncements like I just referenced uh, from Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon Uh, Starting July 1 in the U.S. and Europe, we're not going to take a company public unless there's at least one diverse board candidate with a focus on women. We might miss some business, but in the long run, this, I I think, is the best advice for companies that want to drive premium returns for their shareholders over time. A virtue signaling from big rent-seeking banks like Goldman Sachs bailed out by U.S. taxpayers via AIG during the Great Recession when Goldman Sachs should have been allowed to fail just like Lehman Brothers. And, oh, by the way, how do I know it's not virtue signaling in principle? Turns out Goldman's diversity drive doesn't extend to its business in Asia, Latin America, the Middle East, where all-male boards are more common. One-third of corporate boards in China and Japan have all-male boards, as do 94% of those in Saudi Arabia. Goldman has been busy chasing, chasing business in emerging markets as it becomes harder to deliver growth in U.S. investment banking, reports the Wall Street Journal. Goldman says it will consider extending the policy to other regions over time after consulting with clients and as diversity awareness increases. Sure. Right. Maybe it doesn't want its wokeness to cost the bank global customers who care more about business than American identitarian politics. That's precisely it. And uh, maybe it's time that uh, the political class stop aiding and abetting the rent seekers, particularly the Republican Party, particularly President Trump in a second term, uh, and teach them a lesson about aligning their values with their business interests. Uh, And if they don't think that any Democrat identitarian politician can be President Trump, then why do they continue to uh, promote this sort of cultural Marxism in their corporate boardroom? This has been the Dan Prop Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prop Show. You are fake news.